Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Insight into Teaching Psychology. My name is AJ LaFerrera. I am on the marketing team at McGraw-Hill. And today I am joined by two instructors that have actually joined us once before in our inaugural podcast on personality psychology. And I will turn it over to you guys to introduce yourselves. Janelle, do you want to say hello? Sure. Hi. My name is Janelle Cavazos, and I'm the introductory psychology coordinator at the University of Oklahoma. My job is to uh, run the intro psych curriculum, uh, help with training, other instructors and graduate students, and then I teach two large sections of intro psych myself. Uh, each one has 475 students in it, so that's my specialty area. And I am Laura King. I'm at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and I teach typically um, an honors section of intro psych that has maybe about 20 students in it, and then also a large lecture version of intro psych that has about 400 students in it. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us. Today's podcast is going to be on biology across the curriculum. And, and for those of you who have listened to the podcast, you know that in the fall we covered the biology chapter. And today we want to cover not just biology in the biology chapter, but biology across the entire introductory psychology curriculum. So, Janelle, Laura, I'm going to turn it over to you guys. Biology across the curriculum, where do we even begin? I think that and to me anyway, there's a really strong analogy to be made between research methods and statistics and bio in, in its place in psychology. I think that in the same way that students might think or might be surprised to find out how much of psychology is about research methods and statistics, um, they're also surprised to find out that it's a lot of biology. And I think they sometimes want to think that, you know, once we finish that neuroscience chapter or the brain chapter, we can just put that all aside and never think about it again. So it's, but, it, but it's no longer even possible to talk about basic concepts across the curriculum and intro psych without talking about uh, neuroscience because it's everywhere now. Right. I, I think that neuroscience does two big things for us, one of which is that it gives us some background on why. So when we're talking about the various concepts in these chapters and we can say, you know, the reason why we do this is in part because of this wiring in our brains that are telling us this or giving us this information, and we know this brain region is implicated in this process, so if it was damaged, we would expect this to happen. It allows us to, um, to give them some more emphasis on, um, on the things that are happening behind the scenes other than just talking about, you know, the concepts themselves. Also, you know, with it being more of a topic that really uh, is everywhere in our field, with the entire field really moving towards a neuroscience sort of emphasis, we've seen changes in the way, uh, in the types of students that are taking our classes as well. You know, for example, my, I see many more of my students that are coming in and taking intro also coming back and doing things like serving as a TA for me in intro because they are preparing to take the MCAT. And the MCAT now has a, has a fairly large portion of psychology on it. 
And so they're wanting to take psychology in order to be exposed in part to that neuroscience background. So I think we owe it to those students to really emphasize what we know in the field across the entire course. Yeah, I completely agree. And students are, it may have been in the past that students would be sort of intimidated by the pretty pictures of the brain. Students now want to see the pretty pictures of the brain. They want to know what lights up when, and I think that it is, has really sort of connected students more to all kinds of topics um, that they might not have thought of as relevant to biology. Right. Um, I think that one of the things the pictures, the pretty pictures do is mm -hmm. it gives them something concrete that they can look at instead of talking about a lot of abstract concepts throughout the, the entire course that they can't really see in front of them. Having those pictures and being able to say, look, this lights up and that lights up, it, it allows them to have something tangible that they can actually see changes exist. And it's also, it is a new concept for them. A lot of them, um, at least my freshmen that come in, they come into psychology not having any idea what to expect. They don't know if we're going to go Freud, Dr. Phil. They don't know what's going to happen. And hearing, <laughs> hearing more and more that, you know, this, this is a science grounded in research and that, that there's so many comparisons with biology and that, you know, look, we're actually showing you how these things work in a scientific way is really reassuring for a lot of students and it convinces many of them that psychology is a real science that they should pay more attention to. Yeah, and one hopes that they generalize that idea beyond pictures of the brain, right? We really hope that they come <laughs> to understand that psychology is embedded in this whole process, right? Um, the researchers yes. who even researchers who aren't using brain imaging are still enacting science every day. Of course, it's just one more thing that sort of convinces them, you know, because in part they're reading about it everywhere. I mean, when you open a journal or, um, you know, a magazine or, or look at a TV show, more and more they're saying, you know, well, neuroscience shows that this is the case. And so they're surrounded by it, and so in a way, you know, it serves to legitimize it because it reinforces or at least extends what they're hearing and maybe counteracts some of the pseudoscience that they hear as well that, that they think of as, oh, well, that's what psychology is. Well, no, it's a lot more than that. Right. So even as we're here, we are talking about how excited students are, and often many, there are many students who are excited to think about things like, you know, even though we're no longer talking about, we're not in the neuroscience unit anymore, but now we're talking about motivation or learning, and we are still going to mm -hmm. talk about, say, the, brain the brain's reward centers. A lot of students right. aren't super excited, right? A lot of students are feeling like, ugh, I didn't sign up for a bio class. What do you think are some of the ways that we can... I don't know, I don't want to say make it easier, but make it more accessible to students who weren't expecting psychology to be biology. Well, I think that, you know, one of, one of the things that is so difficult about the actual neuroscience chapter, the biology chapter, is that it's so much factual information all at once. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. this race, do this, and then we have the axon and the myelin sheath and all this stuff. And if they haven't been exposed to that before, it's a lot of 
memorizing bits and pieces. And we try to tell them what they do and why they're important, but they're so busy memorizing that they kind of lose some of that stuff sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think that, that one of the things that makes it accessible, um, at least by the end of the course, is that they see how many times we're bringing it up over and over again and that it matters in so many different ways. So when they can start connecting all of these different concepts with the brain, so we've laid out the foundation in, the, in that first bio chapter, and we've told them what all this stuff does. But then when we start reinforcing it and saying, look, remember when we talked about this? Now we're going to talk about how it plays a role in memory. Or, you know, like you said, motivation or even social psychology. They mm -hmm. start to see how how they can apply the brain regions to specific behaviors. And I think then that that helps it be a little less scary. It's not just itty-bitty bits that they're remembering. It's concepts as a whole. Right. And again, I think that is so much like the way we can effectively have students understand research methods by constantly mm -hmm. the repetition across the different units of the course. I think that's exactly right. And I think if we... Not all uh, instructors, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a soft scientist. <laughs> and I think that not all instructors are that comfortable talking about these concepts all the time, but the repetition of things like, you know, oh, here's our old friend, right, the nucleus accumbens, again, responsible yeah. for uh, reward learning. After a while, the students become to expect, right, it has to be repeated over and over, but I agree that when these, when things that they've learned as bits and pieces are now embedded into a conceptually rich network of associations of all these different areas of psychology, I think it has a huge impact on their ability to yeah. learn and remember what those structures mm -hmm. are all about. I love what you're talking about with people not being comfortable with it, and I think that there's a really, really crucial point here, which is that, you know, for a lot of us, we didn't have this stuff when we were going through our programs. I didn't right. take a class in neuroscience in grad school. We, it didn't exist, at the, not near the level it does now. It hardly existed at all for, for some of us. And so, of course, we're uncomfortable with it. We didn't learn it, and we didn't learn all, all the, the concepts that we're now trying to teach. We didn't learn them in the context of how it works in the brain. So we're kind of having to be students as well. And a lot of us are uncomfortable with that. How can we teach stuff that we don't fully understand? But, you know, I also think that that's kind of okay, <laughs> at least mm -hmm. in the intro level, because nobody expects us to be a biologist. Clearly, that's not what we do. And so right. I, am, I am teaching things at a really fundamental level, at a very simplistic level. That's all I really know but at least they're making connections between the behaviors and the brain regions. And I have students later who tell me that a lot of them, because I teach freshmen, are, are, are taking uh, Bio 1 at the same time that they're taking my class. And a lot of them will tell me, you know, we learned this really basic thing in your class, and then we learned all the, like, microcellular structure about how it works in Bio, but then we were able to sort of take that and understand the, the concept of how it works because of your class. So I'm kind of giving them that, that very general broad overview with a functional perspective, and they're mm -hmm. getting the real deep scientific neuroscience in these other classes that are more geared towards that.
this being a challenging area is something that I hear fairly regularly in terms of barriers to teaching this content more frequently. So let's dive into some specific examples. So obviously, in the biology chapter, we're focusing on the biological content. Where are some other places that you specifically recall back to the content from this area? Do you have specific areas and examples that you use and can share? I mean, I almost think in every chapter there's some sort of way to tie this back together. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that for me, the, um, you know, there are some places where it's a natural. Health psychology and the HPA access um, but I'm a big, I guess I would say that students, when they take um, intro from me, if there's a brain area <laughs> that they are going to know about, <laughs> I don't know what this says about me, but it's the reward centers of the brain. It's going to be about <laughs> the striatum and the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens, and they're going to understand sort of what it is, and the amygdala, what it is about the brain that's connecting them so much to things that matter to survival and what, it, what are these parts of their brain that are going to underlie things like motivation and learning and mm -hmm. ADHD and extroversion and happiness and, and pleasure. And so I'm, I guess for me, and I mean, I guess I think that's a strategy for someone who is not, this isn't their uh, bag, right? This isn't my specialty. But it links in very much with areas where I have expertise and I want to know about, you know, what are the brain areas, what are the brain structures, what are the brain functions that are deeply involved in the things I love to talk about with students, the things that I am, you know, that I can talk about at length with them, uh, whether they like it or not. So I think that sort of figuring yeah. out your area of the brain, that's your thing, where, your, where does your stuff happen, and then talk about that and keep that in mind that, you know, you can develop expertise about particular areas. I think, um, you know, one of my favorite parts of the brain is the uh, orbital frontal cortex, the OSC, which is associated yeah. with, you know, consciousness and the sort of that umami and in sensation and perception, that there are, you know, you can develop your fondness for certain brain areas and um, go to town whenever you have a chance. I, yeah, I completely agree. I, I you know, I think if, if a student leaves my class and I haven't said autonomic nervous system and frontal right. lobes and amygdala and like a million times, like those are, those are the things I emphasize. Um, and again, it, you're absolutely right. It depends on what areas are, you know, are your sort of passion. I mean, I definitely talk about the reward system when we talk about the drugs unit. I don't know that I talk about it a whole bunch other outside of that. But I talk about the, the importance of the frontal lobes a whole bunch mm -hmm. in a whole bunch of different areas. Um, you know, I, I, I think I harp on that a lot in the developmental chapter when we're talking about the transition from adolescence to adulthood. I harp on it in the, in the drugs chapter when, uh, when we're dealing with, you know, why is it maybe a really, really dangerous idea for adolescents to experience drugs, not mm -hmm. that it's not throughout the whole lifespan, but more so for teenagers than other uh, age groups. So I definitely um, emphasize different areas, but I think that the basic idea is, is the same with, you know, finding, finding those things that are important to you that you have a theme for and showing them that the brain can map into any of those themes. 
Yeah, I love this idea of also of bringing up the fact that you know traditional age students sitting in my intro class aren't done. Their brains are not finished, right? Absolutely. They are not right, and giving them that sense of the critical development that's going on, the types of control processes that are being brought online, even as they're sitting there as a, a first-year mm -hmm. student at the university. And I think that also helps them maybe to appreciate the uh, plasticity of the brain. Um, and we always think about, you know, sort of teratogens and critical periods in prenatal uh -huh. development. But to remind them that their brains are still changing right now, that this is a developmental time, and insults to the brain now are can have impact that could have impact long into the future. Absolutely, you know, it's funny because I think that's so reassuring to them. <laughs> I have <laughs> all the time who say, "Oh, thank goodness," because I thought I was supposed to feel like a grown up, and I really don't. You know, mm -hmm. and it's like, no, you're not supposed to yet. It's okay. <laughs> Right. Your brain isn't quite grown up yet. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they find that really reassuring. <laughs> I I also bring a lot of brain science in when I talk about memory and learning. I don't know how much time you spend on that, but I spend a lot of time because I think that one of one of my roles just as a freshman level um, big introductory section instructor is helping them transition from high school to college. With, just with the numbers of students that I see, I get almost a quarter of our incoming freshmen come through my class every year. And so... Oh, my gosh. I, I know, right? Well, you're changing <laughs> lives now. <laughs> for good or for bad. Um, but, <laughs> so I really do try to take it seriously that part of my job is to help them transition from high school to college. And, and so I don't want to just give them study strategies for them to kind mm -hmm. of ignore and not really listen to. I want to give them the science behind why that works, you know, the reason why practicing things in small chunks instead of large quantities helps, the reason why retrieval practice is known to be one of the best ways we can study. I want to show them in the brain why that works. And so, you know, before our first exam, we spend, we spend a decent amount of time talking about study strategies and study skills, but then much more so when we deal with actual memory chapter and how to, you know, why all of those study strategies work really well. And I find that by then, after we've taken the first exam, that, that's in the second unit for my class, that's when they're ready to sort of listen <laughs> because a lot mm -hmm. of them, that first unit, I, I talk about it and I emphasize it, and it really isn't until after they've taken that first test that they kind of say, oh, you meant it. No, you were serious about that. <laughs> oh, and then they go back, and now they're ready to listen. And so now I give them the science behind it. Here, let's hit it again. Let's talk about the same study skills, why it's important, why it works. And at least, I, you know, I, I hope that that sort of hitting it again, that foundation, helps them really think harder about it and integrate it more into, into their everyday life, not, not just in my class, but in all their other classes throughout their college career. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking about when I talk to my students about the importance of sleep to memory, the whole idea of memory as a process in the brain, 
as not like uh -huh. a spot, but actually a whole process, and of constructing connections and new connections in the brain. And I just read the study where they were looking at those traces that are left, right? And sleep is so important mm -hmm. to taking these traces and actually solidifying them and showing that actually sleep, sleep deprivation, pulling that all-nighter, the traces start to lose their integrity. They're much less clear. And it, I think mm -hmm. that for physicalizing the way that sleep helps to instate our memories and also the whole idea that memory is right. about reinstating a process in the brain, I think it's something that really helps change the way students think about memory and hopefully helps them realize they need to go to bed. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Of course. And, and they're so chronically sleep-deprived, um, especially, you know, as college I mean, we all are, right? But especially as college students, um, you know, and when I tell them that they would be so much better off studying for 30 minutes and then going and actually sleeping eight hours before my exam than they would be if they tried to stay up and study for seven straight hours, they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, you can't possibly mean studying less is better for me. And then, right. you know, of course, we talk about all the science behind it, and then it starts to make more sense. And one of the things yeah. I love so, so much about that is that it's so applicable to every single part of their life. I'm, I'm always, right. you know, really sensitive to the fact that most of my students don't want to be there because they're taking it as a general, you know, it's, I mean, it's a gen ed requirement. Right. They don't really care passionately about psychology. That's the very minority of people who are in the class. And they're probably never going to take another subclass. So is it the best thing for me to teach them, you know, all of this neuroscience at the macro level, all of this detail? Or is it better to teach them, you know, general, broad sorts of concepts, but then really emphasize how they apply to their own lives way outside of anything that they're going to do in my class? I think I'm doing them a disservice if I pick on the little stuff when they get to higher level classes that they're really interested in, it, they're going to take neuroscience classes, and they're going to get right. that detail. I just want to help them live better lives because psychology helps us do that. Right. I agree. And I, and I want to say, too, I think that's one of the reasons why, for instructors, this topic, sort of like the biological basis of behavior, isn't, is so intimidating because we feel like we have to do the, the other thing. We have to know the deeds, and we have to, like, share these nitty-gritty details you know, there is no canon of psychology, right? There isn't right. something that, you know, every single student needs to know. But I feel like when we approach these sort of biological basis of behavior ideas, we get intimidated ourselves as instructors and feel like, oh, no, they have to memorize this map of the brain. They have to know all <laughs> these pieces instead of getting no, sort of an I understanding of how the brain is embedded in our lives. Yeah, in fact, I mean, I, maybe I take this too far extreme, you know, more extreme than most, but I don't even emphasize a lot of specific brain regions. I talk about, right. I want you to know, in general, the brainstem, the limbic system, and the cerebral cortex. And there's a couple of important parts in each that I point out, but in general, I want them to understand functional areas, like how they hang right. together, and not necessarily what each exact element does, or especially where to find it in the brain. I, that's not the stuff that is going to stay with them. And if there's one thing I know from teaching conferences and things like that that gets emphasized over and over again, it's that students aren't going to remember 99% of the material we tell them. So 
I want the things that they do remember to be at least useful for them and things that I can bring up in many different contexts because if they hear it a hundred times, they're a lot more likely to remember it. I agree. And, and I think, too, that in some ways, well, we know, right, there are certain things that people don't really talk about very often, like the fact that there are individual differences across brains in where things mm -hmm. are processed and what the functions are. When we have students memorize spots mm -hmm. in the brain where things supposedly happen, we're giving them the wrong impression of the brain as a static organ, right? So they think, oh, right. the brain is no different from my hand, right? The structure of my hand is not changed by me using my hand. But the structure right. and function of the brain is changed by experience. And I want them to think about the human brain as this incredible, it's different, right, from every other organism, every other organ in our bodies, and it's so fascinating because of its plasticity. And the idea, I always tell students, think of all the places where human beings exist, right? We exist on, in deserts and at the North Pole, and we exist in the Midwest and the Southwest, and we, <laughs> sure. human beings come out with this brain that's not done, and one of the great reasons why it isn't done is because it doesn't know yet where it's going to be living. And right. it has to be prepared to cope with and adapt to and, and thrive in so many different environments, right? Some days mm -hmm. there's going to be human brains figuring out how to survive on Mars, and that is right. a testament to the brain's plasticity. But if students are memorizing the brain as this fixed organ that simply functions in this way across all different locations and across different people, I think they get the wrong impression of what makes the brain such a fantastic organ. Yeah, and I think there's so many places in intro where that can really be emphasized that, again, is, is you know, such useful information to their everyday lives, that that plasticity part. We talk about it in so many ways when we deal with development, when we're talking about the fact that acute stress in mom can actually rewire the baby's nervous system because they're more prepared for a dangerous environment if they feel that mom is always, you know, that, that, that fight or flight instinct is always going off and they say, oh, I'm coming into a really dangerous world. I have mm -hmm. to prepare for that. And suddenly they're thinking, oh, well, that makes sense. You know, and we talk about it with poverty and the role of poverty both in development and in social psych, we hit that topic, that it drastically changes the way that your brain functions, the way that it looks, and those changes result in sort of an uneven start point from prenatal development. And I think a lot of them are really surprised to learn about those vast differences as well, but it brings home the idea that and, you know, like you said, the brain isn't just a static thing and that we have a lot of, our environment has a lot of control over how, it, uh, how it's developed, even as we emphasize the role of, you know, genetics and things like that in our development as well. So I had no idea, just recently I came across some research on basically the effects of a lifetime of being a boss. So people who are managers for many years before they retire, people who, and so that the tracing the deterioration of the hippocampus, age-related decline as a function mm -hmm. of 
having had those experiences. And it's fascinating because even though these people do not, don't differ in terms of how much they complain about memory loss that, are, that they perceive as age-related cognitive decline, the hippocampus is spared in individuals who spent a lot of their lifetime bossing other people around. And the number of people that you supervise, right, actually mm -hmm. um, predicts the capacity of your hippocampus to remain and to not show that kind of decline. I think it's, oh, wow. uh, it's really important for students to have those kinds of, to see that, you know, that brain, it's so awesome, and it's, it's changed by experience, and it keeps on changing, right? It has that capacity. And the things that we're putting uh -huh. in now, right, the way we're learning, the sleep we're getting, the experiences we're having are laying a foundation in our brain for who we're going to be mm -hmm. and what the kind of brain we're going to have in the future. Absolutely. One of the other things, uh, you know, while you were talking, I was thinking that when I try to teach these things as well, one of the ways that I do that sometimes is by telling them about those differences or showing them those differences and then asking them to come up with sort of why that makes sense in the context of whatever they're seeing. So, uh, you know, just because it's on my mind, because we just finished covering it, we were talking about the chapter on psychological illnesses. And I was talking about the idea, and of course I showed them a nice pretty picture, that in individuals with antisocial personality disorder, the frontal lobe doesn't light up nearly as much as those who don't have it. And so I mm -hmm. just put the picture up there and I said, does this make sense with their symptoms? Why or why not? And let them kind of talk about it for a little while. So instead of just saying, you know, look, we see this, they can bring in some of their own learning, make some of those connections themselves, but then kind of put together the structure with the function. Again, not in a complicated way, just in, a, right. in general, well, we know that that has to do with self-regulation, emotional control. So, hey, if one of the symptoms listed is impulsiveness, yeah, we would expect to see less activity in the frontal lobe. Yeah, and I think that the whole frontal lobe thing, right, is so helpful. <laughs> Having a brain mm -hmm. area to talk about when you're trying to explain to students about the suite of cognitive uh, capacities that are represented by executive functions and uh -huh. understanding that, oh, right, here's this area of the brain and it's connected to all of these other things that we can understand emotion regulation because we see when the prefrontal cortex is getting involved in stuff that's happening in the amygdala, right? When I think mm -hmm. that students can get a much better understanding of executive function, which is basically so important to almost every aspect of psychology, uh, when they can realize that these things are located or at least seem to share a certain location in the brain. Sure. And then the more, you know, real-world examples we can bring in to show them that behavior that, that connection, the better, and to do the biology throughout the psychology curriculum, to do it service, I don't think you need anything more complicated than that. I don't think it needs to be any more sophisticated than that, and so I think that instructors really need to give themselves a break on thinking that they have to be neuroscientists in order to really emphasize biology in the chapter or in the, in the curriculum as a whole because there's so much we can teach them with just that sort of general foundational knowledge, so many comparisons we can make. And I think that we need to do a better job of making sure that, you know, when, when we share our knowledge of how to teach with other instructors or we're, you know, participating in teaching conferences and these kinds of things, I think we need to do a better job of talking to people about, hey, you don't have to be an expert on this to incorporate it. 
because it's so crucial to their understanding of you know, who they are as people. I agree completely. I think that sometimes instructors feel like if you aren't the expert, it would be better not to share, right? It would be that don't go there, right? Stay with something that you feel more comfortable talking about. But I agree completely yeah. that you really do. Like if you are talking about, you know, various topics throughout the course of intro and the brain's not coming up, I mean, you need to remember that students need to know. The brain is always there. Uh -huh. Any kind of behavior right. we're talking about, the brain's involved. And it wouldn't, doesn't make any sense to sort of ghettoize the brain into one unit of the, or the whole <laughs> nervous system, into one unit of the, of the core uh -huh. and pretend that somehow the mind is now going to make its way through all these topics without really thinking about where the mind exists. Sure, sure. And, I, you know, it, it's funny that you said that. I think it's especially for somebody who teaches all intro and only intro, the idea that you have to be an expert in order to teach it is just, I mean, how do you even do that? You know, we teach everything. We teach literally every single thing, right. at least a little bit of it. If I had to be an expert in order to teach it, I would, I would not be able to do my job. I mean, I think, in a way, part of what makes good intro teachers is that they aren't necessarily an expert in it. Sometimes when you know so much, it's difficult to be able to break it down and talk really generally about topics, which is, I think, all you, all you really need in an intro level um, in order to help the students really get the fundamental basics behind our field. So right. in a way, the fact that we're not experts in neuroscience is kind of a good thing for them. Right, I agree. And I think, too, it helps the students to understand uh, how psychology is growing and changing, the neuro, you know, social neuroscience, affective neuroscience, developmental mm -hmm, neuroscience, mm -hmm. these are all uh, relatively new ideas. And it is cool that neuroscience is no longer just a bio chapter or the cognitive chapter, that it's getting in everywhere. But I think it's also good for students to know that nobody knows everything. Right, and this is <laughs> right. All new. Okay. And if a student raises their hand and says, "Well, where's that in the brain?" I can say, "We're going to find out together. Let's let's check it out." Absolutely. You know, and I also want to, you know, not that I mean, obviously, all things neuroscience is great, but you know, you and I had talked about also the idea that it brings out a really good way to show students some of the limitations as well. Um, when it comes to research methods, when it comes to correlation and causation, and the fact that, you know, when I show you these brain differences in individuals who have schizophrenia, for example, we don't mm -hmm. have really, we don't know whether or not the brain differences are causing the schizophrenia or if the schizophrenia is causing the brain differences. Exactly. And that's yeah. crucial to understand that we don't have all the answers we're still learning a lot about both mental illnesses and how they work in the brain, but also, again, to reinforce the idea that we can't assume one causes another without having some sort of, you know, true experiment, random controls, and all of that that clearly mm -hmm. we can't do in those cases. Right, and I think that it is, there is a temptation, right, for students to think, that the brain is the final cause of everything rather than the brain mm -hmm. is embedded in a process and is affected by experience itself, that a lifetime of behaving uh -huh. in a certain way can lead to a certain kind of brain. 
Um, and I think that constantly reinforcing with them that very important idea, right, that the, the brain mm -hmm. is plastic, that it's adaptable, that it changes, and that behaviors can change the brain uh, maybe helps students to avoid that, what I think is a super common mistake. Like if you can find the spot in the brain, that's the spot that causes X. To get students right. to understand that behaviors cause changes in the brain as well. And we need to always be thinking about the brain embedded in process and not just a static thing. And also, you know, you've got that pesky third variable problem. I mean, right. neuroscience is still so young that we may find out someday that the brain differences we see in these individuals who have various things, that, they, that has nothing to do with those things. Maybe it's a complete right. other issue that is unrelated and we find out that those scans were not read correctly or any number of things could be causing it. And that's, you know, that's the evolution of research. But by pointing out that we aren't sure that there's a cause here, that we can't be sure of that, I think right. it, it helps students realize that there's still a lot that we need to take with a grain of salt when it comes to thinking that everything can be explained with an fMRI scan, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I think, too, that there are also places where the development of neuroscience is really just barely in its infancy. I think about my sure. field personality and sort of personality neuroscience, I think, is no more than 10 years old, and mm -hmm. it is challenging because... Some fields require large sample sizes. When you're interested in individual differences, you need certain types of brain imaging data compared to others. And sometimes the science just isn't there. And so a pretty picture of, of things lit up on a brain might be nice for students to see and exciting, but they may not be informative, or at least not yet, right, of anything at all. Right. right? And I, so I, sometimes I think it's important, too, because of this, you know, the technological advances that we've experienced, uh, our conceptual understanding hasn't always kept up. Great. Well, that was all tremendous. You guys didn't need me at all. But we are at about time, so I wanted to give each of you an opportunity to provide some parting thoughts before we wrap up. So do one of you want to kick us off with some final thoughts? I guess my final thoughts would be that I feel so empowered now to, to – I uh, can't wait to be teaching intro again in the spring. I am so ready to really think about and really incorporating more, even more than I already do, uh, ideas about, about biology and its role across the curriculum. I think that if we continue to talk with students about these concepts, if we treat them the way we do as a foundational thing that the students need to constantly integrate, whatever the area is, to be thinking about the underlying biological processes that are involved, I think that we're going to do right by them. We're going to get make it easier for them to understand those processes because of the repetition, and we're going to also mm -hmm. get them to understand and appreciate really the role of biology in their everyday lives. Yeah, and I guess I'll, um, I'll add to that that I think that, you know, one of the big takeaways from this conversation, too, is that as instructors, we need to give ourselves a break in how intensely we think we need to cover something or how much we need to know about something, that it really is okay to just, you know, mention self-regulation, those frontal lobes, and that's about all we have to do over and over and over again 
to help them really start to make those connections between the structure and the function. Um, we don't need to be experts to make it work. So if you, as an instructor, have been you know, hesitant to try to talk about neuroscience because you know it's not your, uh, your strength, you know, I hope that conversation has sort of allowed, uh, allowed you to maybe think a little bit uh, more about putting some of that stuff in, that it's not so scary, that it doesn't have to be so rigorous in depth in order to really make a difference for students and to convince them that neuroscience and psychology is worth studying and also that, you know, their brains are pretty cool and that the more mm -hmm. they know about it, the more they understand about themselves. And who doesn't want that? <laughs> well, I think awesome. that is a perfect place to leave off. Janelle and Laura, thank you both for joining us again on the Insight into Teaching Intro Psych podcast. And for everybody listening, thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you guys again soon. Thanks, everybody. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.